This is Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." When Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for this child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed from their own country by another way. Well, that's my daughter, Addie, and I'm proud of her in a dad kind of way. Good job, Addie. Thanks. And I also love getting to be here uh, with God's Word open along with you all. I actually woke up this morning in California uh, after being at a funeral last night and got on an airplane early, and I made it in time, which is happy for me, but it's even happier for Josh Anderson, who had the possibility of getting a six-hour heads up that my flight was canceled, and he was going to have to preach on short notice. So I'm really happy to be here. And how about this? Like, we made it to Matthew, finally, right? This We have been building anticipation forever about getting to the book of Matthew together, and we're starting this journey. We're going to spend some time together as a church going on a journey through the book of Matthew. And as we do, we're going to learn about Jesus and discipleship. And we're going to learn about Jesus and discipleship the way that the book of Matthew teaches us about Jesus and discipleship, which is to say it teaches us about Jesus and and discipleship on kind of this journey that begins in Matthew chapter 1 with a picture of who Jesus is. He's the Jewish king who came to save his people from their sins. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. That's where the beginning of the book of Matthew tells us about Jesus and his identity. But it's a journey from there through hearing, through seeing the life of Jesus and hearing the teaching of Jesus and watching the miracles of Jesus and then observing the sacrificial death of Jesus for our sins, opening the way to God and his triumphant resurrection And then where will the book of Matthew lead us in this journey? It will end in the Great Commission. 
At which point Jesus stands and says, having died on the cross for our sins and risen in triumph over the grave, he will stand and say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And behold, check this out, Jesus says, I will be with you to the end of the age. So we're going to follow this journey from he will save his people from their sins to all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. And we're going to consider what it means to know Jesus and to follow him and to make disciples of him. We're going to consider this together. We began this sermon series uh, back in the Christmas season in Matthew chapter 1, and then we kind of delayed it and delayed it and delayed it for a couple weeks. And here we are in Matthew chapter 2. And we read a passage here which is full of surprises. It's full of surprises in part because some of our pictures about this passage that we have received from Christmas are not accurate. The first picture that we've received about this passage in Christmas is that this passage is not about Christmas. That's the the first problem we run into. Uh, You may have heard, you know, you may have seen these nativity pictures uh, or you may have watched that really funny movie called The Star. Amen. With the, the camels and Kirk Franklin music. If you haven't watched it, like, I don't recommend mu- movies often, but like, go watch it. It's awesome. I love it. And if you don't enjoy it, come and watch it with our family because watching one of my sons in particular roll out of his chair laughing every time one of the camels says anything is even funnier than the movie itself. So maybe that's why I love it so much. But, but if we look at a nativity scene or we watch a movie about what happened at the first Christmas, there's always three kings who show up on the night that Jesus is born. The text itself, first of all, does not tell us there are three kings. Are we okay? I'm not, I'm not heretical. Like everyone can exhale. I believe in the Bible. Okay. But the text doesn't tell us that there were three kings. It just says there were magi. Um, and magi is kind of a Bible word for wise people or studied people who would come from the nation of Persia um, in modern-day Iran. Um, So they're from Persia or from uh, Babylon. And in fact, in the book of Daniel, the Magi are people that Daniel is kind of sparring with or fighting with throughout the book. They're oppressing uh, Daniel and other people of God back in the book of Daniel. So that's interesting. Maybe we'll come back to that. So first of all, there aren't necessarily kings. There aren't necessarily three of them. They do have gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, sometimes known as gold Frankenstein and myrrh. It's actually frankincense. Uh, But we know that now because of the essential oil industry, which is really cool, right? Um, And that's been one of the great blessings of the essential oil industry, as we now understand the Christmas story better, except it's not part of the Christmas story, as I'm explaining. But anyway, so... These these magi who aren't kings, and there aren't necessarily three of them, and they don't have Frankenstein, um, they show up at some point, though, in Jerusalem, um, and these are just the, the introductory surprises about this story. But what's really amazing about this is not just how it corrects our picture of um, the magi and their journey to see Jesus, 
What's even more amazing is what it tells us about Jesus and his kingdom. And so let me show you maybe here, um, if I could just kind of dive in with us. Uh, let, let me show you the, the main point that Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 wants to make is kind of implied in verse 2. The main point, if you look at it there, of this passage is that Jesus is a born king. He was born with a purpose to be king. But what kind of king will he be? And there are three things in this passage that I think Matthew wants us to take notice of that are surprising elements of Jesus and his kingship. Jesus and his kingdom. The first surprising thing that we notice here about the kingdom or the kingship of Jesus is that Jesus is a surprisingly humble king. He's a surprisingly humble king. The way the story unfolds, there's a certain emphasis on where Jesus is born. In verse 2, that's the question that the wise men, which is a translation from Magi, is a question for what the wise that they ask. In verse 2, where is he who has been born king. Where is he? Where? There's an emphasis on location beginning in verse 2. And then the Bible people get together. We'll come back to them in a minute. And, and they're asked, like, where is the king supposed to be born? Easy. We've read that in Micah chapter 5 verse 2. We know the answer to that question. If there's a king of the Jews to be born, um, he will be born in Bethlehem. And then we read, Matthew kind of jots it out for us, in case we don't have Micah 5-2 memorized, I'm sure you do. Um, in case we don't have it memorized, it's jotted out for us in Matthew chapter 2, verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You see, there's this emphasis on where Jesus is born. And what is it that we kind of take notice of as we realize that Jesus is born in Bethlehem? What we take notice of is that Matthew wants to draw our attention to this prophecy from Micah which links into the fact that everybody knew that, that Bethlehem was considered a least kind of place. That's why prophetically he needs to say, you're not the least. Historically, the data that we have or the information that we have tells us a little bit about Bethlehem as a little tiny outskirt village just a few miles or a few kilometers away from the great city of Jerusalem. But it was a tiny little village, so tiny that way back when King David was found there taking care of sheep, it was kind of like, that's not where you go to look for a king. And then the prophet Micah came along and said there's a pattern in the way the kingdom of God works. You don't find the king in the places that humans go to look for kings normally. 
You find the king in least of these kinds of places. That's what Micah 5 is saying. And then as Jesus has now arrived, Matthew is telling us here in his gospel that that Jesus is king. But but we need to get this right up front. He's not a loud and impressive and powerful and rich and wealthy kind of king when he shows up in our world. He doesn't show up in the places of wealth and power and luxury. He doesn't show up in the places where everything is great and everybody knows it, right? He shows up instead in a least of these kind of community. Why? Because this is how the kingdom of God works. Jesus came to enter into our world on purpose in a least of these kind of way. God looks at this humble community of Bethlehem and he says, that least of these kind of community, that's exactly where my redemptive mission is going to launch in going to launch from. See, good news, God doesn't measure worth the way that we measure worth. He doesn't do things the way that we would plot them out and do them ourselves. You see, this shows us something profound about the kingdom of God and the Christian life. It's that you don't have to impress God. You don't have to be impressive by the world's standards. In fact, when we find ourselves in those points in life where we feel lowest, where we feel less than others, where we look around at our circumstances and we say, my life doesn't look as impressive as their lives do right now. You see, right there in those moments in our lives, we find ourselves in exactly the kind of place where God's kingdom delights to show up. Jesus came to the little town of Bethlehem, this least of these kind of community, because God loves to demonstrate his power in weakness. And we've heard that before, but we're so slow to digest it as something that's actually true, right? We hear that this is true, that God loves to demonstrate his power in our weakness, and we interpret that as God loves to demonstrate his power once I get everything put back together again. But that's not how the kingdom of God works. God's kingdom shows up in least of these kinds of places, in least of these kinds of circumstances. God shows up amongst the meek. The poor, the hurting, the forgotten, the overlooked. And he says, this is exactly where I love to demonstrate my power. And that should breathe a little bit of light and life into our hearts, right? If we find ourselves feeling a little bit down, a little bit less than, a little bit weak right now. Our God loves to show up in these kinds of circumstances. Why? Because Jesus is a surprisingly humble kind of king. In fact, he'll demonstrate his humility not only 
in the humility of how he's born in the least of these kind of situations. He'll ultimately go on to demonstrate his humility in how he dies. Obeying the Father all the way to the point of death. Even death on a cross for us and for our salvation. Jesus is a surprisingly humble king. And the second thing we want to see here is not only that Jesus is a surprisingly humble king, but also, and now we're kind of getting more into the magi part of the story We also see that Jesus is a surprisingly divisive king. He's a surprisingly divisive king. Notice there are a couple of very different kinds of responses to Jesus here in this passage. On the one hand, there are responses to Jesus that are surprising in this respect. There are a number of people in Matthew chapter 2 who at first glance who from the first kind of appearance, right, they look like people who should love Jesus and follow Jesus and worship Jesus. Uh, The people that we're thinking of here are, first of all, the guy who sits on a throne in Jerusalem, Herod. And if you think about the storyline of the Bible, if we're reading about a guy who sits on a throne in Jerusalem, of all people, shouldn't this person be eager to welcome and worship The king of the Jews, God's anointed. And in addition to that, there's not only the powerful guy who sits on a throne in Jerusalem. In addition to that, this passage also introduces us to the chief priests and the scribes. These are the Bible people of Herod's day, right? And let's look at the text and notice what goes on. So so the magi come from afar. They ask, Who or where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. And when Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem. So track with me in what's going on here. We've got a guy sitting on the throne in God's city amongst God's people. And we've got the Bible people of the day who come together, who know their Bibles really, really well. So much so that you say, where's Jesus supposed to be born? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. We got that one. Any more trivia questions for us, right? We know our Bibles well kind of people. And then there's not only the guy who sits on the throne and the Bible people of the day, but it says all Jerusalem with him was troubled By the arrival of Jesus. So one of the things that's happening is we've got people who at first glance look like they should be Jesus followers and Jesus worshipers. People who know their Bibles and live their lives around the Bible. And what is their response to Jesus? They don't follow. They don't worship. They're not ultimately going to bow before him. They might know their Bibles really well. They might pretend and say like Herod, hey, I want to worship Jesus too. But in the end, they will not bow. For Herod, perhaps the issue is that he realizes very clearly there's not room in town for two kings. Either I'm king or Jesus is king. 
And like so many people throughout history, Herod has to face this question. There's not room for two kings. Either I am or Jesus is. And if it comes down to it, I'll fight for my own sovereignty. I'll fight for the right to maintain my own kingdom, to protect my own power, to keep calling my own shots. Then we've got the Bible people. Maybe a warning, if I could say it lovingly, and I do say it lovingly, to some of the teenagers here especially. Listen, it's possible to grow up around the Bible to live your life hearing the stories over and over and over again. Maybe even to become a Bible trivia champion. Where's Jesus going to be born? Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Next question. It's possible to grow up around the Bible, to know our Bibles really well, and ultimately choose not to bow in worship before Jesus. It should kind of wake us up and sober us a little bit, right? So on the one hand, we've got all of these people who look like they should be following Jesus, and they don't. We've got these people who, at the surface level, they've been very near to they've been very near to the center of God's work. They're right there, and yet their hearts are very far from Him, in pride, and in a refusal to bow and worship. On the other hand, what else is going on in this passage? We've got some people who look like they have no business with God's people at all. Foreigners. Magi from Babylon and Persia, the place where God's people had gone in exile. These are kind of from the group or the tribe or the type of people who opposed Daniel and his message back in the days of the Old Covenants. Here we've got these outsiders who by all external appearances, they look like they are so far away from the kingdom of God. And yet their hearts are strangely drawn. And they see a sign in the stars. And what do they do when they see something in the stars? They begin following But they don't have nearly as much understanding as the people in Jerusalem. But what are they doing with the little understanding they have? They're taking first steps to begin following. And then they get to Jerusalem and they hear the teaching of the scriptures. They need somebody else to explain it to them. They don't have it all figured out on their own. But they see a sign in the stars and they follow. They hear the teaching of God's word in the scriptures. And what do they do? They follow. They obey, they listen, they go. They follow after Jesus. And when they find Him, how do these outsider-looking people, these far-off kinds of people respond? They follow. And then they fall down in worship before Him. And they offer all of their treasures to Him. See, there are surprisingly different responses to Jesus and his kingdom here in Matthew chapter 2. From the earliest years of his life, there were surprisingly divisive responses to Jesus and his kingdom just like today. When there are still surprisingly different responses to Jesus and his kingdom.
Some, maybe even some who have grown up around the scriptures, who have so much information, will say, I'd rather protect my own right to be king. Even if it means fighting against Jesus, whatever the cost. Some who begin near end up demonstrating their hearts are very far and will prove themselves enemies of the kingdom of God. And on the other hand, in the wonder of Jesus, many who appear at first glance to be far will end up bowing down in worship, following, kneeling, offering all of their treasures to King Jesus. There are surprisingly different responses to King Jesus. Some will hate him as a threat to their own vision for life. Some will hear the teaching of scriptures and yet turn away. But a few... A few will follow and keep on following. A few will pay attention to what is revealed in the stars and even more close uh, and, and pay attention even more closely to what is revealed in the scriptures. And not only follow, but fall in worship, devoting all of their treasures and all of their lives to this king above all kings. Some will hate Jesus. Some will turn away. But if you will follow worship and offer their treasures to him. And do you see why I say that Jesus is a surprisingly divisive king? In Jesus' own day, as today, there are vastly different responses to Jesus. That's not new at all. But here's the question we need to pay attention to. In the end, nobody just shrugs about Jesus. So here's the question. What's your response to Jesus? Maybe you've grown up near. And this passage in its own kind of way is challenging you, nudging you to say, well, what's your response to Jesus? Knowing the scriptures does not make you part of the kingdom of God. Not apart from faith. And perhaps to some who have lived much of your life very far feeling far, looking far, maybe even accused or looked down upon as someone who must be far from the kingdom of God. Maybe God is inviting you to come near and to join in worshiping King Jesus. Jesus is a surprisingly humble king. He's a surprisingly divisive king. And here's a third and kind of final thing. i spend a few extra minutes on this. Jesus is also a surprisingly inclusive king. He's a surprisingly inclusive king. And I'm not just using the inclusive language and I'm not just going to talk about diversity because tomorrow is MLK Day. I want you to see this is here in our text and it's here in our text for a reason. 
while the guy who sits on the throne in Jerusalem ends up raging against King Jesus, see verse 16, which we'll look at more next week. While the guy who sits on the throne in Jerusalem ends up raging against King Jesus, while the people who know the scriptures end up rejecting King Jesus, a few people end up following King Jesus. And who are they? They're others. They're them. They're foreigners. They're people who by all accounts almost certainly grew up in a different religion. Studying the stars. And yet something draws them. And then as they begin to hear what the scriptures proclaim about the truth of Jesus Christ, something melts the hearts of these wise men, these magi, and draws them, these foreigners, these outsiders, to a place of worship. And notice, this is part of what Matthew wants us to see about Jesus. Remember, we saw this in the Christmas season, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, who's the son of David and the son of Abraham. What's the big deal about Abraham? This is the guy from Ur who is told, I will bless you and I will make your name great so that through you, I will bless all the families of the earth. Matthew 1 verse 1 is telling us something about the kingdom of God. It's not just for a few who look alike and talk alike and grew up alike. And then where does the gospel of Matthew end? It ends with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go and make disciples of one nation. Go and make disciples in two or three chosen nations. No, go and make disciples among all nations. And here Matthew is presenting us with this picture of Jesus saying, at the very beginning of the gospel story, at the very launch of Jesus' kingdom into this world, the nations are already coming to worship Him. Those who once worshipped false gods are turning and coming to worship Him. The nations are being drawn already. What the prophet Isaiah foresaw, a light for all the nations, is already happening. They're coming. They're beginning to worship Him. And as Nat beautifully presented for us earlier... You know where the story of the scriptures are going, don't you? You know what heaven will be like. The book of Revelation says, I looked and behold a great multitude that nobody could number from every nation. From all tribes and people groups. From all languages and the cultures that go with those languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to God, to the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So this is where history is going. 
and we hear these descriptions of what heaven is like in the kingdom of God. And something in our hearts either does or something in our hearts can. And you're invited today to let your heart beat with joy as you begin to pray. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Every nation, every language crying out, worthy is the Lamb. That's what's going on in heaven. And we're invited to pray, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth. As it's already beginning to be done in heaven. Jesus is a surprisingly divisive king. But he is also a surprisingly inclusive king. A king who came, and notice this, he's the king of the Jews. There's no way to avoid that. The text makes it clear over and over and over again. He comes from a specific line for a specific reason to fulfill God's promises of a son of David who will reign in God's kingdom forever. And yet this kingdom that belongs to the king of the Jews will not only include the Jews. It will include a countless multitude of people from every ethnicity, from every cultural background, from every tribe, from every nation. And we see that, and isn't there something in our hearts that says, that's beautiful. Let your kingdom come. Let me point out two ways that I think this specific thing can impact us. I think one of the ways that this can speak to us today, I'm steering a little toward application here, is that okay? One of the ways that this can impact us is this says to all of us, each and every one of us, that by faith, that that by grace through faith, you can belong in the kingdom of God. This is not a kingdom for an elite few. This is a surprisingly inclusive kingdom that includes not only Jewish people, and let's thank God for that, right? Like, I think Brian, who's worshiping with us online right now, um, and Elise, and I, like, we can kind of sneak in through family line a little bit with the Jewish crowd. Like, three of us maybe, and maybe there's one or two others of you, like a couple Jewish family members. Right? But this is good news for us, and for like at least three quarters of me, right? This is good news for us that the kingdom of God is surprisingly included, inclusive. It includes the Gentiles, which means people like you and me, folks. But praise God, He's reached out and made a home for us in His kingdom. He's made space for you and me. He's made space for us at His table. At the wedding feast of the Lamb, there's a spot with your name written on it, Christian. And so as we think about the kingdom of God as it's revealed here in Matthew chapter 2, I want to, I want to make sure that you realize this is good news for you because it tells you there's a place where you can belong. There's a way that you can belong by His grace toward us. Not because we earn our way in. We fail our way and we stumble our way apart from God. But by His grace, 
through faith in him. There's a place for you in the family photograph. You belong. You're okay with Jesus. In fact, beyond being okay with him, you're loved, you're embraced, you're given a seat at the table. You have a spot at the family feast. You belong. And I think there's something that some some of us just need to breathe kind of an, an exhale, a sigh of relief, and say, God, thank you for including me. Thank you that by your grace, through your faith, I know that I don't deserve it. I know that I, that I didn't work my own way in. And the harder I've fought to get my way in, the more I've realized it would have to be all by your grace. And what does that do? It kind of melts our hearts and says, God, thank you. Thank you for including me. Thank you for including us. There's another way that I think this passage kind of speaks to us. It's not only that it tells us this good news that, that the kingdom of God includes us by grace through faith. The other thing that this passage says that I think is significant is it reminds us that the gospel includes, that the kingdom of God includes them by grace through faith. And we can fill in them in a lot of different ways, right? Now, the kingdom of God is surprisingly divisive. At the end of the day, those whose hearts are set against Jesus, whether in, whether in rebellion and self-centeredness, or whether in a religious devotion that leads them to say, I refuse to bow to Jesus. Apart from kneeling in faith, we won't enter the kingdom of God. We'll see throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there are a lot of ways in which the kingdom of God is, the the way is narrow. Not everybody is going to follow it. But as we hear this over and over, we need to keep in mind that the kingdom of God that has included us by grace also intends to include them by grace as well. We've got to ask the question, what does this passage say, which we've thought a little bit about. We've also got to ask the question, why does this passage say it? Why does Matthew want to emphasize that the kingdom of God includes people from all different ethnic backgrounds? One of the reasons that that Matthew wants to emphasize that is because in the early church, one of the great challenges that the church faced, one of the great ways that the church kept stumbling over and over was in these issues of Racial, or we would say ethnic unity and harmony within the body of Christ. And so think about the book of Acts. What's the big crisis in Acts chapter 6? There are Greek-speaking women in the church, and there are kind of Hebrew-speaking women in the church, and they don't feel like they're being treated the same way. What's the issue with Peter in the gospel of Acts? He's happy to hang out with the Jewish people, but he's not sure he can go and hang out and have a meal with the Roman Latin-speaking folk. Then we turn to the book of Romans, and we've got this issue between Jewish Christians 
and Roman or Greek Christians. We look at 1 Corinthians and there's all kinds of issues related to how ethnicity in Corinth is related to the gospel. Uh, and, and then we go to Galatians and we've got this whole thing uh, with Paul and Peter and ethnicity, right? I confronted him to his face when he withdrew from eating with the Gentiles, Paul says. Then we go to the book of Ephesians. And what is Paul talking about with the church in Ephesus? The dividing wall of hostility has been broken down by Jesus Christ. Stop acting like there's a wall of hostility between ethnic groups today. And on and on and on. One of the things that the early church kept stumbling over and tripping in was in this issue of how can we build the kingdom of Jesus in such a way that it demonstrates God's vision. Going back to Abraham and God's vision as the kingdom of God is designed and God's vision as it's designed even in the nations coming to worship him when he was an infant or a young child. The kingdom of God is meant to include not only you and me and us, it's also meant to include them. And why do we need to hear that today? Because just as the early church kept on stumbling over these issues of finding unity and harmony ethnically in the kingdom of God, so across the years, many Christians have continued to stumble in issues related to building and reflecting and shining and showing and demonstrating God's vision for unity and harmony, ethnically speaking, in the kingdom of heaven. And that's true in America, isn't it? Now, okay, exhale. I'm not going to give you a Republican platform or Democratic platform on issues of race. That's not what we gather for. We gather for Jesus' platform, right? And Jesus' platform is a platform that says, my kingdom, my people, are not only people who look like us, the way we define us. It's meant to be a kingdom that includes them, the way we're tempted to define them. Kingdom of God is surprisingly inclusive. And that means there's a place for you where you belong. And that also means the kingdom of God is meant to have a place where they belong as well. Um, while I was in California this week, um, I, I heard a story about uh, one of my nephews. I have a few nephews that I really like a lot. And uh, one of my nephews uh, is in elementary school. And his teacher wanted to have a conversation with his mom after school one day because the teacher was a little bit perplexed about why this student was so interested in the civil rights movement as they were studying uh, history and talking about things in their class. My, my nephew um, has a Caucasian mom and a Chinese-American dad, and so kind of looks a little bit Asian and a little bit Caucasian. And you can kind of imagine the teacher's issue. Like, this kid is more interested in the civil rights movement than any of my other students are, or than any of my other students across the years typically are. And I'm trying to figure out, why does this kid care so much about people who don't look like him? 
It's an honest question from the teacher. I'm not trying to rebuke her for it. It's an honest question. And so she asked my sister about it and just kind of brought it up with some perplexity. Why does he care so much about the civil rights movement? Why is he, as an elementary student, so interested in that? And my sister said he has cousins who are black. We've adopted a few kids into our family, and so my nephew understands this. But here's the thing. My nephew understands something. He demonstrates something. His example teaches us something. You see, my nephew cares because he knows he has family. And I'm listening to this and I'm paying attention to this living parable in front of me. My nephew really cares in a way that other people can see and observe because he knows he really has family. Do you see how this kind of preaches itself, right? Can I talk to those of us who are part of this church and are, you know, we kind of consider ourselves to be white or majority culture for a moment here? Do you realize that you have family in Christ that don't look like you? Like you really do. All around the world and also here. Do you realize that you have family in Christ whose experience of life in America might be a little bit different than yours? We really do. And here's the thing. Just like my nephew, I wonder if we've made this connection. Is it obvious to others around us that we really care because we understand that we really have family? As I heard this story about my nephew's Concern about these things and these care and his care for these things is just stirred up something in me And this is what i'm after I'm, not pushing a political agenda here. You want to talk about politics I can talk about politics later, but most of my politics are just going to be let's make sure jesus is above our politics That's my main thing that I care about But here's what I am after right Doesn't this stir up something in our hearts that would lead us to to say I want to pray lord Let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And God, may it be for our congregation and may it be for churches throughout Aurora and throughout Chicagoland and throughout Illinois and throughout the United States that it would be clear to others around us who are observing. Like these people really care. Why? Because we've got family. I want to, it stirs up something in me that just leads me to say, I want to pray that we would be people who are known as people who care about God's vision for a kingdom that includes not only us, but also people that we might be tempted to identify as them. That would stir our hearts to pray that we could become a part of that, at least by caring. And I doubt that you're an elementary school student who's assigned papers to write with topics to choose from and so forth. But maybe for you it starts with just praying a prayer like that. Just praying that God would make you and make us a part of his vision for redemptive kingdom diversity. 
And maybe it means as we read through our Bibles, we have our eyes open to see this theme of God's vision for a kingdom that would include people from every language group, from every culture, from every ethnicity, from every nation. And we pay attention to how often God's word talks about this. And maybe that will lead us to pray more for people in Japan and people in Tanzania and people in Tunisia and and maybe it would also lead us to pray that we would reflect God's heart for diversity and harmony. Maybe it would lead us to pray that we would reflect his vision for redemptive kingdom diversity right here in Aurora more clearly as well. Maybe for some of you, some people read something by Martin Luther King Jr. on MLK Day. Coming tomorrow, whether it's letter from a Birmingham jail or something like that. If you're reading MLK tomorrow, may I suggest to you that you read it with a kingdom lens. Considering how does this reflect things that brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced? Can I suggest to us as Christians that we hear and think and consider Martin Luther King Jr. Day, not as just to shrug our shoulders because it's a strange excuse for a day off. If we just stopped talking about racism, there wouldn't be any more racism. Maybe instead of that kind of approach, we could say, I care because I've got family. I've got family members who tell me that family members, brothers and sisters in Christ, They testify to their pain and their prayers. And what if we join our own hearts and say, I'm going to pay attention and I'm going to listen and I'm going to care. Why? Because I've got family. Maybe this affects the way we listen to each other and we talk to each other in conversations about these kind of controversial and difficult and kind of landmine feeling issues of Race of race here in America. I mean, it's so hard to even have a simple conversation about these things these days. But what if we approach these issues not primarily as, here's what my political party wants to get done about this, but what if we approach these issues primarily as, I've got family. I'm a part of the kingdom of God that's going to include people from every ethnicity, from every background, And therefore I'm praying, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. May we become an outpost of the kingdom of heaven that demonstrates what our Lord Jesus Christ lived his life for and gave his life for. A great multitude of people redeemed by his blood Not with their ethnicities now lost or ignored or forgotten. But a great multitude of people who are still recognized as being from certain tribes, from certain language groups, from certain nationalities, from certain ethnicities. And yet unified, united in harmony, crying out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I think that Matthew chapter 2 It shows us that Jesus is king. But it shows us something more specific than that. He's a surprising kind of king. 
He's a surprising kind of king who is surprisingly humble. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. He's a surprisingly divisive king who you can't ignore. And he's a surprisingly inclusive king who is building a kingdom of people from every tribe and language and people and nation. A kingdom that includes us. And a kingdom that we want to cry out will more and more include more of the people that we would want to call them. So that together with those brothers and sisters, we can anticipate the day when we cry out, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. I want to lead us in praying along those lines, if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this picture of Jesus. And I pray that you would use your word. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would stir something in our hearts to love Jesus more. And to love even more deeply his vision His vision for an unprecedentedly diverse community of people from every nation coming to worship Him. I pray that you would capture our hearts with a vision for your plan for redemptive kingdom diversity. God, we want to open our hearts and pray like this, pray like the Psalms teach us. Would you search our hearts? Are there ways where we have become uncomfortable with your vision for kingdom diversity? Would you search our hearts for ways that your spirit needs to shape our church to be inclusive in the way that Jesus is inclusive, to be inclusive like the kingdom of God is? Would you use these words and by your spirit, would you shape our hearts to love people from various ethnicities and languages and backgrounds from around the world more deeply? Here in our own, here in our own city and in our own lives, we confess that too often, like the Apostle Peter we can be tempted to shrink back and think it's easier just to hang out with people who are culturally like me. I confess that. And yet, God, I pray that your kingdom and the gospel of Jesus Christ would break down the walls and make us people who live like it really is true. Jesus gave his life for a great multitude from every nation and therefore we really care because we really do have family. I pray that you would make us a people like that in increasing measure, not just so that we can get along better, but to glorify your name. I pray to the glory of your name that you would get these kinds of things done in our hearts and in our lives. Change us and shape us 
in the way that you intend to, I pray. Romans 15, 5. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.